Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. Of all the types of biography in the world, the most common would have to be the kind that many undertake as a project of telling their family history for the benefit of their children and grandchildren. For those that embark on these kinds of biographies, a suitcase of letters or photographs can prove to be a bonanza, and national archives can also yield unexpected treasure. When documentary filmmaker Sharon Connolly decided to write a biography of some of the more flamboyant members of her family, she began with the evidence she inherited in an old zither case. The contents of that case took her into the world of vaudeville, where her great-aunt Gladys shone as a star of the stage with an unusual talent. Gladys appears on the cover of Sharon's book, My Giddy Aunt, which is more than a biography. It's a cultural history of a vanished world of entertainers that travelled the country in the era before cinema took over. I spoke to Sharon via Zoom at her home in Hobart. Sharon, welcome to Life Sentences. Thank you very much for having me. Now, how much did you know about your family before you embarked on this project? Not terribly much. I think I knew that my father's parents had been involved in show business and I didn't really understand what vaudeville was, so I didn't really know what that meant in terms of what kind of show business they were engaged in. And I also didn't know very much about their history. My father was slightly estranged from his parents in that he'd been brought up by his grandparents of necessity because, as it turned out, his vaudevillian parents were travelling the country and New Zealand constantly and so that wasn't a great way to bring up a small child. And the other thing about it was that my grandfather had died when I was quite young And my grandmother lived in Perth and we grew up in Melbourne. So there was a whole continent between us. And we really, in those days, I think people forget actually what it was like in the 1960s when I was growing up. It wasn't like you just jumped on the plane at at the drop of a hat. Phone calls were expensive. And so there wasn't actually a lot of communication. Yeah. So I never got to hear my grandmother's stories. And the other key people in my father's family were dead by the time I was a small child. So how did you come to acquire this battered zither case full of photographs, which is, of course, a goldmine for any biographer or cultural historian? Well, yeah, after my my grandmother died in 1992 and my father came back to Melbourne with this battered old case full of photographs and news clippings and the odd pocket notebook and nothing much else actually (laughs) and it wasn't until sometime after that that we actually opened up that box and started to look through it and of course there wasn't a lot of information inscribed on the back of those photographs the news clippings were more self-explanatory but I realized that you know there were more people than my own grandparents involved in this and my father was able to identify his uncle and aunt who were both featured in many of these photos, some of which were absolutely captivating. I mean, there are photos of a jazz band in the 1920s, In a lot of photos of a jazz band in the 1920s in that case. And as someone said to me recently, they look a bit like the old split ends. <laughs> 
because they're kind of, they're what you would call zany. So there are people striking poses and really acting up with instruments and exaggerated expressions and shiny dinner suits and these these were just extraordinary. But in these photos, there was one person who sort of stood out from the rest and Often she was the only woman in the photographs and she was a very sort of vibrant, dark, small person who turned out to be my great-aunt Gladys. I think that out of this extraordinary family, quite an extended family actually, Gladys is my favourite character in the book and I think that that's probably because of her particular talent. So tell us what Gladys was known as and for. Well, Gladys was known for many things, but I guess the most unusual of them was that she was a siffleur, so or a siffleurs, I suppose. That means that she was a whistler. And it wasn't an uncommon skill to have in those days, but it was quite uncommon for women to do it. There were loads of male whistlers in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, and even a few women not very many in Australia, though I have dug out a couple of them, both of whom were called Daisy. Uh, <laughs> but my great-aunt Gladys was a real knockout siffleur. She was renowned for it. I didn't quite realise how extraordinary this was until I went to some of the big theatres that she whistled in. And when you see the size of them, of course, she was whistling in those places well before audio amplification. So it had to be a powerful enough whistle for for it to reach, you know, right up into the gods. Not only did it have to be powerful, but she also whistled an extraordinary repertoire. So she would whistle the national anthems of various countries. She would whistle jazz songs. She would intersperse her whistling with yodelling. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that was her kind of key vaudeville talent. But I will also say that I think what what eventually became clear to me that she was also a really significant comic actress. And this was kind of made plain when she was recruited by the famous Nat Phillips and Roy Reen, otherwise known as Stiffy and Moe, which was the biggest act in Australia and New Zealand in the 19, uh, early 1920s. And she was, for a time, with their company, the leading character comedian, playing in all sorts of skits, playing in what became known as the Revusical, which was a kind of... I think it seems uniquely Australian invention. It was a kind of one-act musical comedy in which she took many parts, usually playing, you know, ingenue, um, maids, but she would also play, you know, matrons of hospitals, matrons of society. She had a real... (laughs) a really large kind of range of characters that she could Well, you, I with. must admit that you introduced me to that word, revusical, and I'm still kind of slightly traumatised by it. It seems like such a weird kind of hybrid word. So in terms of the, where it fits in the sort of vaudeville range, singing, dancing, is it kind of an all-purpose type of show, do you think? That's more a review, and that's the classic vaudevillian genre, if you like, and that was probably around the English-speaking world anyway, pretty widespread. And and that definitely was the all-singing, all-dancing review, often organised around a theme. But the difference with the reviewsical was that it actually told a story. It might have been oh. a pretty basic, stupid story, but it did tell a story. 
and it was organised along narrative lines. Usually there would be a male comic duo uh, leading it, so Stiffy and Moe, for example, in their reviewsicals, always played the leads and they always played kind of really similar characters. They were pretty much Stiffy and Moe in everything, but around them was this cast of other people who took various parts in the story. There are rough scripts available in some university libraries, notably the University of Queensland Library, and it seems that they were often workshopped by the cast. So while in Stiffy and Moe's versions of reviewsicals, Nat Phillips or Stiffy would often write the script kind of roughly, he'd write a storyline, it was then fleshed out in workshops with everybody and songs were kind of organised throughout it as well. And do you think that there was any effort on the part of the cast to do what, say, I suppose bands do when they're touring, which is to acknowledge, you know, whether it's just by saying hello Perth or how are you feeling tonight Melbourne, was there any sense of introducing any kind of local references or local colour as these shows moved from place to place? Not in that section of the program. So a vaudeville program that contained a reviewsical would generally have two sections and in the first half of the program there would be individual acts, typically vaudeville acts, so there'd be dancers, singers, comic skits and so on, and that would be the place for that. So all of my relatives worked occasionally as sort of what they call patter artists really and they did, I mean, they did stand-up comedy before we called it that and they would often do segments in their program. They would do things like topicalities, I think was one of the things they, they talked about where they would actually, yes, research local newsworthy stories and create jokes and get laughs out of various local identities and so forth. But the second half of the program, no, I think those reviewsicals were pretty much kind of self-contained plays, really. I do love the photographs that you've used in the book because, as you say, these are not normal family photographs. They are publicity stills and, as you say, they're people in very zany poses, in very glamorous clothes. But the one on the cover is the absolute showstopper. So so tell me about that photograph. Well, that photo actually was not in the case of photographs I inherited. <laughs> so uh, the book was then, you know, the, the case of photographs was the impetus for me to go on a long journey of discovery through records all over the country. And they included records held by the National Film and Sound Archive. And uh, just idly browsing their catalogue one day, I found a reference to Gladys Shaw, who was my great aunt, and it turned out that it was a publicity still, well, it was a still taken for the purposes of casting. So it was a still that she submitted in the 1930s to CineSound, which was then one of the few companies in, you know, that maintained a reasonable level of film production because the film industry in Australia by then was pretty much moribund. And she'd obviously used that photo to audition or to put her hat into the ring for a part. My suspicion is that she was trying to get a part in Mo or Roy Reen's one and only film. And there was a part in that for somebody playing a vamp whose name was June East, with a clear reference in the day to Mae West. And I think that's what that photo was for. But, yes, it, it came not out of my personal collection, but it came from the National Film and Sound Archive's Cine Sound Casting Book. 
Just talking there about the archives and the importance of archives, this is something that anyone who's embarking on any kind of family biography and doing the kind of research that a lot of people do now into their relatives, their, their family tree, one of the great assets that you used was Trove. So can you just talk a little bit about how you used Trove to flesh out the stories? Mm. Well, I think this is true of lots of histories that focus on women and particularly working class women, or I think I'd call my family working class. They were sort of bohemians, I guess, in a way, but they were they were certainly not well-educated middle-class people. They were not the kind of people with stable homes. They were not the kind of people who kept diaries. They were not the kind of people who wrote copious numbers of letters. So I did initially think that it would be an impossible task to follow their stories. But then, of course, I realised that they lived and worked in times when just about every town in Australia had its own newspaper. And those newspapers were remarkable because, of course, they chronicled everything that happened in and around that town or in that district. And that included, notably, the many visits by touring theatrical companies like those that my family members were employed by. And so it then became possible to find... Once I knew this, there was a long story about establishing names because, of course... It was a complicated family, names changed, and then there's the added complication of stage names being used. But eventually, once I established the names, I could then search Trove, which is a very wonderfully searchable database of digitised newspapers and magazines, and I could find all the references to them wherever they were. So there are references from way out west you know, or in very remote places. And then there are references to them in Sydney or in Auckland or Melbourne or wherever. So I've got literally thousands and thousands of bookmarks with every reference, which, of course, were not only references in articles, they were references in pretty much set publicity materials that obviously theatrical companies distributed and they were also advertisements. So sometimes, you know, and this is particularly later on as vaudeville starts to peter out, you didn't get a lot of coverage in terms of criticism or reviews, but you did at least get ads so I could track them. Well, you mentioned there the thing about the names. I have to say that in terms of sleuthing, in terms of family history sleuthing, the degree of additional difficulty that the stage names add to your project is absolutely mind-boggling. And it's quite fascinating to think at this point in our history, the ease with which people could change their names and, in fact, to some extent, change their identities simply by moving to another state or another town or another country, never mind the stage name business. But, I mean, in the case of... well. Let's talk about Gerald Shaw because he's a perfect <laughs> example of this. And, well, he is a rogue. And, of course, that's another element to all of this is that when he's changing his name, he's changing his name because he is a bit of a con artist. Oh, he's a total con artist. And, yes, well, Gerald Shaw, where do I start? Gerald Shaw was a young man who 
my great-grandmother ran away with in 1895, basically. She was a kind of good middle-class woman from Sydney. She was married. She had two children. She yearned to be on the stage, and she was on the stage. She took to the stage in spite of her husband's objections. Unfortunately, then she ran off to New Zealand with this fellow called Gerald Shaw, who was 10 years her junior, and left her children in the care of her husband and a housekeeper who she trusted. And with Gerald Shaw, she went on to have three children, uh, one of whom was my grandfather, one of whom was my great-aunt Gladys the Whistler, and (laughs) the the youngest was my great-uncle Jerry, who was a very well-known radio announcer in Sydney and Brisbane later on. So, but Gerald Shaw turned out to be a cad, and uh, mm-hmm. he 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 was, I guess, he was an adventurer and he was an a dabbler and he liked to dabble in the latest things. And at the time, the latest things were mining. He was a get-rich-quick merchant. He he was you know obviously completely addicted to the idea of get, making his fortune on the gold fields or or the tin fields or the whatever the kind of precious metal of the day happened to be. And But he also quite liked the idea of making his name on the stage and mm-hmm. he was he, he was possessed of a very uh, good voice apparently and he was a strikingly handsome bloke from the pictures. And so he led his new family around the country on this kind of merry dance which toured the nation's theatres but it's incredible how often those theatres appear to be in places where there have recently been mining significant mining fines so the family ends up at southern cross in western australia it ends up in new south wales it ends up all over i mean one of the astonishing things about this story is how mobile these people were and that begins with gerald shaw sort of pursuing his fortune wherever it might be found when we talk about that mobility just tell us how these people are traveling from a to b are they using the train are they are they on horseback what are they doing well rarely are they using the train part of a lot of the a lot of the travel in the book takes place between Western Australia and the Eastern States. And I had to remind myself, you know, that the train line wasn't built until 1917. So when they first, when this family first goes from New South Wales and Victoria to Perth, they must have travelled by steamship, which was the, the way to get there. And then I don't have pictures of this, but I have seen pictures of other theatrical troops on horse with horses and carts going to some very out-of-the-way places. I think when there were trains, they used trains. So in New Zealand, for example, they would have travelled by train quite a bit. There was quite a... that they arrived in New Zealand at a particular time in the 1890s when the rail network was booming, and they probably would have travelled by train then. They lived a very intense performing life when they were performing, particularly the next generation, the vaudevillians of the 20s, so Gladys and my grandfather and my grandmother, and that's another part of the story. But 
they they performed six days a week when they were in major theatres and major towns. They performed six days a week, two shows a day, and they were also simultaneously rehearsing the next show. So I think that probably getting on a boat and travelling to the west of the country would have been blessed relief, blessed relief, yeah. Well, and I wondered about something else, Sharon, which was I wondered whether, in fact, maybe while they were on the boat, would that have been the time that they would have been sewing or repairing or even making costumes? Because I wanted to know about what they were wearing. Ah, well, my great-grandmother, Mary Agnes, who was herself possessed of a lovely voice and was an accomplished musician, really, she certainly made the costumes for the family troupe. So I probably haven't quite cleared up the story of the generations here, but just to be clear... Mary Agnes is the middle-class Sydney woman who ran away with the scoundrel Gerald Shaw and had three more children who were my great-aunt Gladys, my grandfather Keith and my great-uncle Jerry. And they formed a family troupe which had various names but was often called Shaw's Family Players or I think at one point they were called the Royal Pierrots or... <laughs> Uh, they they took whatever name seemed to be fashionable at the time. Mary Agnes was quite an accomplished seamstress and she made all their costumes and there are reports in newspapers of the costumes having been made by Sydney's principal costume maker, Zender, but in fact that can't have been true. They couldn't have afforded it and I'm pretty sure she made them. So they dressed in all sorts of things and, in fact, the costumes and the makeups are remarkably effective in the old photos from what I can make out. You can see these children performing in front of painted backdrops that would have been painted by their father, Gerald, who who had worked as a scene painter at various points. And you can, but you can see the dirt floor beneath their feet. So they're, they're probably outside on dirt and they've got these painted backdrops, but they're costumed quite effectively and their makeup is quite extraordinary. So they relied quite heavily on those kinds of props and dressings. This is, as you say, a family show, so they work as a family. Children on the road would have been a liability when they were very young, when they were infants or toddlers. How soon were they put to work on the stage? Oh, very early. I think Gladys's first appearance was probably made when she was four or five. It's, it's you know, the first one I can find a record of. So she was baby sure, and she was baby sure until she was about eight my grandfather was known as the pocket comedian and he was probably on the stage from the time he was about 6 and yeah so they were they were so they never had proper schooling because they traveled a lot they were you know it was not often that they attended school for very long so do you know whether they could read and write Oh, yes, they could definitely read and write because I've seen their writing. I found notebooks and I did find one or two letters. Yeah, no, they could read it and write. And, and they actually had an extraordinarily good musical education. And uh, I think they probably had very good elocution. <laughs> uh, and certainly, you know, occasionally 
you hear vaudevillians of the period and of course like all Australian performers of the period they tend to sound a bit English but I'm sure that my relatives fitted into that so I think my my great-grandmother educated those children as best she could on the road and it probably wasn't too bad an education she'd been to Fort Street herself school in Sydney herself and she'd certainly finished school and she had the kind of accomplishments that you'd expect of a young middle class woman of her day and and she and particularly musically she was quite well trained in music theory and piano and voice and she went on to train lots of other people later on apart from her own children so they did have a kind of rough education but it was on the road it wasn't unusual for children and to be part of theatrical troops and family troops at the time. And there has been some work done on how exploited those kids were in some circumstances. And I'm sure there's lots of terrible stories, but it's true to say that that generation and then the next generation, people like my grandparents and my great aunt who took to the stage, the popular theatre stage in the 20s and 30s, they were the children of those kinds of families as well. And so very often this stuff stayed in the family and in fact it continues in families so you know Australia's Tony Sheldon who's a very well-known actor for example is the son of Tony Lamond who is herself a, a remarkable entertainer and she is the daughter of Stella Lamond who was a contemporary of my grandparents it wasn't unusual that it that it stayed in the family in that way Now, one of the other strong threads um, through your book, which I thought was really interesting, was mental health. And there is an element to this story which is very sad. So would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Okay. Well, I didn't really know much about this when I started either, but it became clear to me as I searched the official records that valuable among them were the records of mental institutions, asylums, whatever they were called at the time that, as it turned out, covered many generations of women in my family. And so this set me off on another sort of research path, if you like. My great-great-grandmother was a a woman called Mary Gertrude Boyd, who, who married and became Mary Gertrude Warrington. And when she was in her 40s, she started to have auditory hallucinations. She heard voices. And her husband had her admitted to Gladesville Mental Hospital in New South Wales. And she was, I think, 46 at the time. She remained in the asylums of New South Wales for the rest of her life, that is, for another Mm. 43 years. She probably had some sort of psychosis. It seems that from the records there was a suggestion that it was related to her menopause, And the psychosis doesn't seem in the records to have persisted for all of her life, but gradually she became demented, I think. So that's a terribly tragic story. And it affected the rest of... It affected future generations in a number of ways. Not the ways you might think, not in terms of them inheriting her mental illness, but in terms of the ramifications that had for the family. So... In the 19th century, the properties of people regarded insane, like my great-great-grandmother, were controlled by a state guardian who was titled wonderfully the Master in Lunacy. And the Master in Lunacy took control of my great-great-grandmother's estate, which was quite significant in the day because her father had left her three properties in North Sydney 
and I think the will said for her own and exclusive use and specifically ruled out them being handed over to any husband. So he'd worded his will in in the times before married women's property rights. He'd worded the will in such a way that she could hang on to those properties. However, as it turned out, the master in lunacy ended up controlling those properties, which meant that she was never able to help her daughters, one of whom was my great-grandmother, Mary Agnes, the burlesque singer who ran away with Gerald Shaw. Everything seemed all right for a while, and then when Mary Agnes, my great-grandmother, was in her 60s, her mother, Mary Gertrude, died in Rydalmere Hospital in New South Wales, and eventually, because of that, Mary Agnes did finally, in her 60s, inherit enough money to buy herself the first stable home she'd really had since early adulthood. And she bought a house in Rosebury, just not far from the CBD in Sydney. I think she was very lonely there. And I think, you know, after all those years on the road, living in theatrical boarding houses and whatever other accommodation there could be, her children were by then all grown and you know, running around the country entertaining audiences just as she had. And I think she got very lonely. She became depressed and was eventually herself admitted to Gladesville, the very same hospital her mother had first entered. And now she had quite a different illness to her mother. So Mary Agnes, the records would indicate, was depressed. And that was, you know, really her major problem. Unfortunately, while she was in Gladesville, she was there for almost a year before she caught pneumonia and she died at the age of 67 in Gladesville Hospital, two generations down. Her daughter, her only daughter, my great-aunt Gladys, um, she of the wonderful cover photo, was herself in the 1950s sent to Morissette Hospital in New South Wales under what was called the Inebriates Act. And that allowed for people who had chronic alcoholism and couldn't be helped in other ways to be confined to mental hospitals to dry out, I guess. The records would seem to indicate there wasn't much treatment. It was really about a sort of enforced drying out rather than, you know, any kind of therapy. But she was there for as long as she could be there. She could legally, I think, be confined for a year and she served... I served. She was... uh, (laughs) incarcerated, in other words, she was confined, let's say, to Morissette Hospital for 12 months because of her alcoholism, third generation. The fourth story in this sort of sad sequence is that of my grandmother, who was not related by blood to these other people I've just described, but had married into the family in that she married my grandfather. And she suffered from some kind of anxiety disorders, you know, for quite a bit of her adult life. When she was 47, I think, in the 1950s again, in 1954, it was suggested that the treatment for her anxiety might be psychosurgery, known to most people probably as lobotomy or leukotomy, Mm. which was a surgical procedure, quite a sort of not terribly invasive surgical procedure. It could sometimes be done in doctors' rooms, not in the hospital, although in her case it was done in hospital, where, uh, look, it's a bit hard to explain, but, you know, a flap would be lifted into the brain and sort of the brain would be poked around with a bit and this was supposed to 
help. Well, as it turns out, that wasn't really a very appropriate treatment for her anxiety disorders. It was sometimes used for to treat other conditions with perhaps a bit more success, but it wasn't a terribly successful treatment in her case either. And But it did, I think, probably have the effect of what was called blunting of the personality. So I think her personality, she was, she was, I should say, she was reportedly less anxious after that procedure, but she was never able to use her then stage name Sunny Day again. She wasn't the bright, vivacious lass who'd been described in the newspapers. She was an older woman. So... I was particularly shocked, I have to say, by the leukotomy. Mm. I mean, all of it was shocking to read and it made me reflect a, a great deal actually about the way in which women who were different in some way were treated. I'm not sure that all men who were different were treated in exactly the same way. Let's talk about something a little bit uncomfortable, which I think probably caused you a little bit of discomfort in this story and is about different tastes, different times, different attitudes. That is that as part of these revusicals, these vaudeville shows, call them what you will, there was an element of entertainment known as coon songs. Mm. Did members of your family sing these coon songs? And if they did, did they adopt blackface? I'm pretty sure they did. I don't have pictorial evidence of that. I bet uh, you're glad you don't. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was pretty confronting to discover this. I, I suspect Gladys as a child, baby sure, you know, and she was on the stage, as I said, from the age of about five probably. I think she probably regularly performed in blackface. In Australia, these songs, which were songs that caricatured African-Americans, basically, they caricatured their manner of speech, they caricatured their dancing, they they caricatured their stories and made them seem a bit simple, which was all rather weird because... At the same time, as they were kind of being made to seem like simpletons, the fact was that the act itself was mimicking quite sophisticated rhythms and sophisticated dances. And so there was a sort of sophistication about the performance that kind of didn't go with the sort of simplistic caricature of the of the the dumb African-American, if you like. And all of this prefigures the jazz age, of course. It's the beginnings of it, It's yeah, but it does prefigure it, yeah. And so, yeah, I found all of that terribly confronting and it goes on. Yes, it does go on. It goes on into the jazz age, in fact, where, you know, uh, and this will probably be better known to a lot of people today, but, you know, dancers like the Charleston, the Black Bottom and so on were part of the jazz age thing and my relatives performed them too. But these two were sort of, they were dancers... They were dancers created for popular entertainment in an age when you could see film of people dancing and you could hear the songs on the radio, you know. So there was a a worldwide transmission of these cultural forms that probably wouldn't have been so possible quite in the 19th century. But but again, they were caricatures and they they those dancers bore little relationship to the dancers that might have been part of life on a plantation for example. But but they were they were caricatures. So that was confronting. And of course there are many other confronting things about vaudeville. It was anti-semitic. Uh, characters like Mo and there were plenty of others 
and it was quite there was a, a whole tradition of what was called Yiddish comedians and they often were Jewish they used heightened Yiddish accents. Mm. Uh, they made jokes about Jewishness that we would find quite offensive today. So that was that was a kind of that was a big part of of many vaudeville acts as well. That's before you even get to questions of sexism. So there's no question that a lot of vaudeville was terribly, terribly sexist in its caricatures of women, in its mockery of women who were fat, in its mockery of women who were stupid, in its mockery of women who were overbearing. They were all sort of archetypes, if you like, that that were highly offensive today, if considered today, but they were just part and parcel of the vaudeville act. Is there anyone in this extraordinary cast of characters that you feel a special connection to? Well, I I have two answers to that. I love Gladys. I never Mm. knew Gladys. I love Gladys. She was just so out there. She was outrageous. She did all the things you weren't supposed to do. She whistled, she danced, she did eccentric dancing. She She cracked a whip. She cracked a whip. Yes, that's another part of her career we haven't even talked about. In the in the 1930s, she became part of a duo called the Arizona Girls who were cracking whips and yodelling and singing and sharpshooting, no less, uh, along with their dog, <laughs> uh, a Pomeranian called Goldie. They were quite an act. <laughs> um, so, yeah, look, she was a goer, Gladys. She just kept trying, you know, and I think one of the things about the book is that, that I tried to talk about their resilience. It's not very usual in Australia for people to have 50-year-plus long careers as entertainers. So to survive for 50 years as an entertainer in this country, even now, is something remarkable. So, And she did that by adapting constantly. You know, she took up the saxophone, for God's sake. You know, when... <laughs> When the saxophone was considered a somewhat sinful instrument, Gladys, tiny little Gladys, she was reputedly quite, you know, uh, small, took up a, a great big. I think she, I think she might have played, you know, a big saxophone, not just a little one, and apparently played it very well. She was outrageous. So I have a great deal of admiration for her, and I'm, I'm. I'm really pleased that I've got this sort of outrageous woman in my family history. The other answer to that is I did know my grandmother, Elsie, and I only knew her as a somewhat damaged older woman. Hmm. And I I regret now that as a sort of an intolerant teenager, I didn't understand more about her story. You found her embarrassing and kind of slightly... Uh, yeah, well, she, you felt slightly embarrassed about her, didn't yes, you? Yes, I was slightly embarrassed by her. I didn't see that much of her, so I didn't have much time to feel slightly embarrassed by her. But I, but when she was around visiting us in Melbourne, I did feel somewhat embarrassed by her. I, I, I She was a very unusual person and I thought she was somewhat annoying, I think, as well. But, in fact, you know, now when I look at her history, she was a pretty incredible person. She was determined to be on the stage from the time she was a young woman. She had considerable success on that stage as a singer and a dancer and a comedian. And she kept at it. And even and she too was very adaptable. So she went from vaudeville into radio, really. And so she was a radio actor and, and she had 
you know, she had parts in some significant radio plays, even when she was very sick. She had a hard life. She was separated mm. from her her only child, my father, Keith, because of her need to keep travelling so relentlessly. And so she kind of lost all her family connections along the way in pursuit of that career. And then, of course, she had this terrible battle with mental illness and somehow survived it. So... I've learned a new respect, I guess, and fondness for my grandmother that I didn't actually know as a younger person. Is there anything that you've learned about the research process itself that you could share? Because so many people now do embark on writing biographies not for publication, unlike yours, but just so that they can pass on the story of their heritage and their roots to their children. Which is, in fact, entirely how mine started too. Not that I have children to pass it on to, but I just wanted to know more myself. And so I didn't actually ever set out to write a book. I I started out, you know, I, I became addicted to trove, which is a not uncommon experience. So, you know, you find something and it's like gold and then you find the next thing and it's a thrill. It's a real rush. So it's very enjoyable and I'd advise everyone to get the most enjoyment out of that process that they can. I only began writing it down as a narrative, I suppose, in order to keep track of my discoveries. So I kept thinking this this is so much material and so complicated that I'm going to lose track of it myself if I don't kind of keep documenting it in some form. And as I wrote it, story began to emerge. Now, I'd have to say probably my background as a documentary filmmaker, you know, made that likely that I was going to assemble the material in a narrative form. But as that happened, and I, and this would be my advice, I, I think to be clear about what it is you want to say. So I, I think that very early on it, it became clear to me that it was more than just a story about my particular family and the people yes. in it, though it is that, of course, but that I had some things I wanted to say that the story enabled me to do, their stories enabled me to do. And and so then I guess my advice would be enjoy the fun of the research but make sure that you do the wider reading and thinking about what that means. Find the context within which these things happen. Don't, I mean, the particular is marvellous and necessary and wonderful but it doesn't live without the context. So... I guess for me that was the big thing. I don't think Australia actually cares terribly much about its artists and I I think it doesn't, it will say it does, but it doesn't actually act to value its cultural producers, for want of a better term. Uh, I mean, clearly First Nations people understand this, the importance of culture, the centrality of culture, the importance of handing it on, the importance of renewing it. It's absolutely essential to them and their lives. And actually, we need to learn from that our own appreciation of our own cultures, whatever they are, including First Nations culture, of course, but also we need to venerate, perhaps is not quite the right word, but to celebrate and acknowledge, respect and honour. That's a very good word, thank you. The artists and the cultures that they make, yeah. Now, of course, not everyone is blessed with colourful relatives to write about, but Sharon Connolly really had to work hard to make sense of the clues in that battered zither case. 
there's nothing more maddening for a biographer, whether amateur or professional, than photographs without dates or names. As well as being a great title, My Giddy Aunt is remarkable for being both a lively family biography and a significant contribution to the cultural history of a world that was ephemeral and transitory. The trail of Sharon Connolly's relatives crisscrosses the country under various names, and if it weren't for those publicity shots and the articles in local newspapers of the day, their traces would have disappeared. I still don't know what to make of the word reviewsical, though. I should say, by way of full disclosure, that Sharon has been a friend of mine for over 30 years, and I'd like to add that I can see a hint of Great Aunt Gladys in her features. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. <laughs>